Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking with organizers about the craft of organizing. Today, my guest is Caroline Murray. Caroline talks about the power of asking why. The other day, I picked up my 10-year-old daughter from school, and we took a walk. She shared some stuff that she really didn't like in her relationship with a couple of friends. My response was kind of a buck-up-it's-all-attitude speech. Later, I realized I'd missed the opportunity to understand what she needed from the conversation why she had raised the subject. What she really needed was someone she trusted to process her feelings with, not advice. Once I got it, I was able to be of help to her simply by listening. This dynamic plays out in our relationships every day, and organizing is about relationships. We have to get really good at relationships. One part of that is understanding what's underneath people's feelings and actions. Asking why it feels this way, why you see things the way you do, Why you think we should go in this direction helps us do that. Not as some rope practice, but out of genuine curiosity. Good things happen when we ask why. Caroline Murray has been organizing for 30 years. She is principal of Innovative Organizing, where she brings strategies to movement organizations, leaders, and campaigns seeking to build power and scale their impact through organizing. As executive director of the Alliance to Develop Power, a multiracial low-income people's organization, Caroline was at the vanguard of the new economy movement, organizing to win a community-controlled economy of thousands of units of housing and over $80 million. When did you first become an organizer? Not like when did you get your first organizing job, but like when did you first become an organizer? You know, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I think when I knew that I had found my thing, was during the Jesse Jackson for president campaign. So I was on the national field staff. You know, this is kind of before computers. So we were, (laughs) um, you know, I know how to like cut a walk list by hand um, using a phone book, which they don't make those anymore either. But um, so I started in New Hampshire. I went to Florida and Georgia and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And, you know, it was really hard organizing, person-to-person relational organizing, building what at that time was, you know, the Rainbow Coalition with Jesse Jackson. And in 88, you know, he actually got quite a a bit of support from the white community and did quite well and actually made great changes at the Democratic Convention. But I remember we were in Pennsylvania and it was towards the end of the campaign. And we were, we were really tired. And I was also in charge of doing some of the labor outreach. And they sent me to Chester, Pennsylvania, or maybe it was like Marcus Hooks, to the oil, chemical, and atomic workers. And they said, go get them to endorse. And I was like, well, that's not going to happen. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll give it my best shot. So I went there, and I walked into the union hall, and, you know, it was dark and smoky. It was like something out of, you know, a movie. And all white guys, middle-aged white guys. Now, oil chemical and atomic workers are, you know, it's a hard job. Yeah. And they had been on strike for, I feel like it was more than a year. And they, you know, they had a food pantry there and, and people were really suffering. Yeah. And I met with the president. I learned that his daughter had cancer. Um, he brought me home to his house to have dinner. And I met his wife. And he said some pretty offensive things. Mm-hmm. And I continue to sort of talk about Jesse Jackson's vision of the future and, and how that was more in his self-interest than any other candidate. 
And then he said, if he comes and walks a picket line with us, then I'll take it to my board. Hmm. And I was like, okay, we'll do it. Of course, I'm not allowed to commit to that. So I went back <laughs> to the Jackson headquarters and I was like, okay, he has to go. And it was a, you know, a little bit of a back and forth and we got him to go. So Jesse shows up and, you know, this is like the eighties were really complicated. Right. And it gave birth to Ronald Reagan and it was just a really complicated time and very similar, I find, to sort of the birth of Trump. Mm -hmm. And so he shows up. This is a sort of devastated area, this particular area of Pennsylvania. A thousand people show up. Jesse gets out. So I had to like brief him on what's happening, how long they had been on strike. I had to tell him that the president of the union's daughter had cancer and here put this green ribbon on your shirt. You know, particular leaders are very good at just sort of transitioning and being in the different realm. And so he did a prayer with the president um, for his daughter. And they immediately launched into a march and they went around the plant with a thousand people who were all cheering and chanting because no one had been paying attention to them and their strike was getting no, you know, no love. And then I had to kind of run ahead and get to the end. And we had this whole sound system set up and we started to quickly, you know, make sure the sound check was working and it made that horrible, really loud buzzing noise. <laughs> and then the sound system broke. So I was like, oh my God the sound system is broken and a thousand people with the oil chemical and atomic workers led by Jesse Jackson are about to turn the corner. So I ran very fast running to the front of the March and I like grabbed the bullhorn from someone who was at the front and I ran back and we like threw some hay on the back of a pickup truck. And then when they arrived, it looked like he was supposed to get on the back of the pickup truck with the president of the oil chemical and atomic workers. And I'm like, oh, here you are. This is where you're giving your speech to the thousand people. And I handed him a kind of small bullhorn. And there is this really famous picture of Jesse Jackson on the back of a pickup truck with his arm around this white guy in an OCAW, International Union baseball cap, holding a bullhorn. And that is from that event. Oh, my God. I'm like hyped, right? And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> but then what happened was Jesse gave a speech. But then, you know, towards the end of the campaign, he started to do his I am somebody chant, mm -hmm. which he hadn't been doing in the beginning. Hmm. But once that. it was very clear that it was over, he did that chant. And it was not the typical crowd. He, that was more of a church chant for him. Right. And he did it anyway. And he was preaching and, and healing this group of people who were so harmed and broken and they all joined him in this chant and then he kind of switched it over to the keep hope alive chant and they were sobbing mm. everyone in the crowd started to cry including the president of the old chemical and atomic workers wow. um and then i started to cry i'm about to cry right now after yeah, remembering this. yeah and i said oh my god there is something to this that's when i was hooked yes Talk about creating the arena. I mean, yeah. so much happened and you organized it to happen. That's amazing. Let's move forward a little bit. Like what were some early moments or early teachings that have really stuck with you about organizing? I think that the thing that I really carry with me, and it, it also sort of comes from that story as well, is the idea that, you know, what is the definition of organizing, right? And And for me, it's really developing grassroots leaders, building power and winning. Now, of course, within all of that, there's so many other things, but the real heart for me is having a real curiosity and love for people and meeting them, whoever they are, 
people who are different than me, I, I think are interesting and talking to them, listening. You know, I, I always say to the folks that I'm teaching, like, you need to ask why mm. and delve deeper and, and engage in some real deep listening. And then you have to also share your story because this is a mutual public relationship that you're developing where we're making our private pain public through sharing our stories, but it's got to be two ways. And in the course of building those relationships, we take people on a journey, right? And one of the things that I always say is shame keeps you quiet. And if mm -hmm. you can ask why and help people identify their shame and then move to a different place, then you can develop hope and then take action, right? But you've got to have a vision to take action. And so that that sort of trajectory and that commitment to that as a as a practice, for me, it's sort of like a calling. It's a spiritual practice. And I feel like I have been around so many people who have reinforced that for me, that real commitment to developing those relationships and to lifting up the leadership of folks on the front lines um, of people who are immediately impacted. Otherwise, you know, you're not an organizer. You might be an advocate. You might be a campaigner. You might be a social worker, all of which are important, but that's not what community organizers do. Mm -hmm. There's a story about Shell Trap that I think you'll appreciate. Mm. Um, one of my first National People's Action before People's Action was People's Action. It was National People's Action. And we were at one of my early conferences there. And I was, you know, feeling it out. And we had brought a bunch of people. And I was in the lobby. And Trap was crying. The rooms were all screwed up. Maybe you were at this one, too. Oh, everybody's, yeah. everybody's rooms were often screwed up. Every other this, year. Yeah, yeah. In this case, they were really screwed up. And the hotel was being very rude to our people, which was also not uncommon, right? Because the great unwashed yeah. descend in these bougie hotels and they just really don't know what to do about it. Um, and someone was saying something and you know, they, they couldn't fix it. And Trap said, oh, you need to go fix it. Do whatever you need to do to fix it. And then he said, our people get shit on every day and they're not going to get shit on when they come to people's action. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Okay, I'm in here too. So there's like you know, these moments where they just kind of reel you in. And I think for me, those moments really are about the sort of heart and soul and and dignity of the human spirit. Yeah. And Trap definitely cared about the human spirit. Can you say mm -hmm. like what's, a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like, who the hell is Shell Trap? Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, who's Shell Trap? Well, Shell Trap is an old Alinsky organizer. Was he trained by Alinsky or he was, who was he trained by? He was trained by Gaudette, who was trained by Alinsky. Yeah, yeah. So he, you know, he started this network, People's Action with Gail Sincata and, and brought unaffiliated groups. This is before the rise of sort of stronger networks. And so I was running a small local group and understood that, you know, it just like people need to come together to build power. Organizations need to come together to build power. So I was very interested in, and our members were very interested in, in being in solidarity with organizations from all around the country, working on issues that may not be our immediate issues, like you know working with farmers in Iowa, but that, that built all of our power and that the act of solidarity was part of what we needed to do to create a new world. And so Trapp was leading that. I first met him at a, in a, the basement of their old office. Everybody was like smoking cigarettes. It was like so thick with smoke. I think I, <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> And, and there was just like all these just kind of ragtag organizers, just like imagining the future and what we could do together. And it was, it was incredible. And we had an organizer conference uh, every year, which I think you might still oh, do, yeah. right? 
And yep, yep. a lot of that was staying up late at night and having trap pastor us. There was one time when I was on the verge of leaving organizing because we were going to have a major loss, I thought. And he, you know, pulled up his chair next to me and was kind of gruff and like put his head down right next to my head. It was like really in my space, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. And he <laughs> said, so what the fuck are you afraid of? I was like, oh my God, I can't do this right now. But that's the question that needed to be asked. You know, when we talk about agitation, it's not about bullying someone, it's loving, right? And it's helping totally. people find themselves and get to the questions that they're not asking themselves, that, that like ask why. And he said, what the fuck are you afraid of? And I was afraid. I was afraid of losing. I was afraid of the responsibility of sort of taking folks on this journey and and invoking hope and a vision of something that was possible and then losing. And he helped me. He stayed up with me for hours that night, one-on-one, -on -one, oh. and he helped me. And the next day I was, I was better and I went back and we won. So there you go. <laughs> uh, no, I remember that night. I was, I was there. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I remember that moment. And uh, I tear up a little bit because I think about that's what's so cool about this craft is it's like constantly developing other people. You know, whether it's mm. the organizer or the member or the leader, if you take that out of it, it's not organizing. It's mm -hmm. some other shit. And that's it's probably good shit, but it's not organizing. Right. And, so, and funny, Trap, I think, has this reputation of being so tough and scary. And I was like... He was actually never mean to me. He was always about developing me. It was never about yep. Yep. anything but that. So, like, I feel like when the financial crisis hit and then, you know, there was the initial reaction and then there started to emerge this whole conversation around the new economy. Mm -hmm. um, not the new economy as the libertarians or Silicon Valley would picture it, but the new economy of one, like, way more controlled by community, way more cooperatively controlled it was super exciting, but ADP was doing that way before. Like, can you explain like what ADP was and why it was special, especially in the context of the idea of the new economy? Yeah, yeah. So ADP stands for Alliance to Develop Power, and I was there for about twenty years. Um, and it started off actually as a tenant organizing shop. There's this whole sort of many tens of thousands of units of HUD assisted housing that were at risk of losing their affordability. And we were organizing tenants to fight for policies that would save the housing and then to find nonprofits to sort of buy them and fix them up. And in the course of our organizing, and again, like doing deep one-on-ones and really, you know, asking why and developing these relationships between and among people from many different buildings, we sort of arrived at a different kind of a model, which was that people said they don't want to replace one bad landlord with another bad landlord. Even if it's a nonprofit, it still might be bad. And mm. that folks said, you know, why can't we have control over these decisions? And, you know, many folks were saying that your building competes with that person's building and so that they shouldn't even unite together, that it should all be separate sort of building organizing. Mm. So we created, you know, this umbrella organization that brought everyone together and came up with a new model that said the tenants are going to purchase the properties themselves and convert them to tenant-controlled housing. And that was pretty controversial because, you know, the nonprofit housing industry is very powerful and very aligned with the Democratic Party. And 
we ended up competing with a number of nonprofits to purchase the buildings. And these were multi-year campaigns that involved tens of millions of dollars and major housing developers that we went literally went to war with, which was actually the night I was crying with trap was I thought we were going to lose the whole shebang. And we ended up winning and purchasing as a result of that campaign, 3000 units of housing and keeping it permanently affordable. One of the, the incredible moments, and there's many stories, but one of the most incredible ones was that one of our groups in Greenfield was partnering with the, the local housing authority. This is sort of before we came upon this final conclusion that we really needed to buy them ourselves as tenants. And mm. it was the night before the signing of the partnership agreement. And Terry Allen, the board president, was he was like in his Vietnam vets group and he was the sergeant at arms. So he was really good at reading bylaws. And he was staying up late at night and he called me. He said, there's something wrong with the bylaws. They changed it. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's midnight. Are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And so they changed one of the pieces in the bylaws that said that the housing authority would always have majority control. Now, obviously, majority control means that they get to make all the decisions, which isn't how it was supposed to be. It was supposed to transition over time. So we called an emergency meeting in the morning and the board said, we're going to kick them out. We're going we're gonna to cancel the, the signing. We're not going to do it tonight. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, you need to, like, talk to more people. So we did it. Everybody went out. We went door to door. We called an emergency meeting of all the tenants. There was, like, a couple hundred people there. And by God, they voted to kick out the housing authority, knowing that that might make them actually lose the deal. Because, again, we had, like, tens of millions of dollars at stake. But they wanted to take that risk because they wanted to have complete self-determination and have control over decisions that affect their lives. And to me, you know, if I didn't have my sort of ear to the ground and the members and the leaders were not truly in positions of decision making and instead were sort of people that I just turned out or mobilized, that never would have happened. I never would have made that decision. I thought they were crazy, as a matter of fact. Hmm. But fast forward anyway, we ended up doing a number of buyouts, many thousands of units. And then we were at a meeting after that when we were sort of figuring out the budgets. Now we own these buildings. What are we going to do with them? Because we had moved from opposition to governance. We were very mm -hmm. good at fighting and we did not know how to run anything. We had no idea how to do it. <laughs> and so we were at a budget meeting and we were sort of pouring over all the budgets. And another member, Ray Crossler, who you also know, we were looking at the landscaping budget. And Ray said, why don't we mow the lawn? And mm. it was literally like fireworks went off and light bulbs started flickering <laughs> and ghosts of, you know, tenants from years before started whispering at us because we knew <laughs> that some new thing had just happened and that we were not tenants anymore and didn't just buy this, but that we were now major landowners and had economic power that we could then wield in all new ways. And so we created from that uh, what we call the captive market. We studied Mondragon, we studied cooperative uh, principles. Mm, yeah. uh, and so we, from there, we created worker-owned businesses, we created uh, food cooperatives, and a whole, what we call the community economy that serviced that captive market of housing. So there's a painting business, a landscaping business, a construction business, a cleaning business. We had a farm on the land that we had that was valued at about $80 million and that was completely controlled by members. But we maintained, it was really important that we kept a focus first always on organizing and about, about building power mm. and being led by members, not as a, a CDC. You know, if you look at the history of sort of the community oh, development yeah. corporations, they, they went awry. And so we were really clear that our institution, creating alternative institutions, always came out of a campaign. 
it was always a solution to a problem as opposed to someone's idea from outside of the community. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we bought the housing because the tenants wanted to buy it, we created a landscaping company because we needed landscaping and we had members who knew how to do that. We then built a farm because we had immigrant members who were farmers and they knew how to do that. And then they could sell the food and then also service the rest of the membership. So everything sort of came out of the experiences of our members and were solutions to problems that they identified. It's really amazing. And that was our community economy. It was beautiful. And it was also really, really, really hard. And I don't want to sort of downplay that yeah. because, I mean, organizing itself is sort of countercultural, right? It's against what we're taught to do in the world. Super countercultural. To be in relationship with each other and to develop social trust is not, of course, what our society tells us to do. That's right. We're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be hyper individuals. Yep. But then when you add a layer of that, of cooperative decision-making around money and work and businesses, it gets very complicated. Yep. And so we had to integrate like this constant retraining and and trying to walk the walk and build the muscle of like developing a practice it was very hard and it was also really beautiful and really messy and i think you know if i was to say something to a young organizer about this time and don't don't idealize your people you know people are just people and they make mistakes (laughs) well say more what do you mean by that I mean, you know, someone might have, you know, stolen some money or, you know, took an extra bag of food from the food pantry or driven the community car when they weren't supposed to, you know, because people just do stuff. Yeah. No one's perfect. And I think that a lot of folks think, first of all, that grassroots leaders or members are somehow special and not suffering from the human condition that we all suffer from. That's right. And they hold them to expectations that are just not reasonable. Yeah. Um, And so we had a a sort of rule at ADP that redemption was always available. And that's we had a team of leaders that would say, like, you know, this happened and there would be an accountability conversation. And maybe they would need to take a time out or something from their membership or their leadership if something egregious had happened. But that they could come back, that that they could, you know, a form of restorative justice. And there was the possibility for redemption that we mm. that we loved each other, but that sometimes you know things happen. I actually remember y'all doing that. Yeah. 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 I'm picturing you at the National People's Action Convention. You know, we have a thousand folks there. ADP is usually good for a hundred of those. You know, and you're the director of this. <laughs> you know, you know, awesome organization. Sitting there with a member, prepping them for a role, like for maybe two hours helping them work through mm-hmm. that. Like what, they're going to speak at a plenary or lead an action. Probably one of those two things. Mm-hmm. What's happening in that space and why are you putting two hours mm-hmm. into that? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You could be like writing a grant mm-hmm. or, you know, something else, <laughs> but you, you were always doing that. Right. Right. Well, you know, as when I started off and I was talking about what goes into like a real commitment to grassroots leadership, it's a mutual relationship, right? And one of the things that we always said is, we're going to be there with you. We're not going to throw you into something that you are not prepared for. Yes, we'll throw you into new things and we'll all agree to do that. And we'll all do that together. And we'll be brave together and we'll learn together. And we can trust each other to have our backs. And so that meant, you know, working with someone to develop their own 
story to develop, to prep, to lead a rousing speech, to get ready, you know, to confront ICE agents, um, whatever it is that we're going to do that together. And I think I've, I've seen a lot of organizers kind of write speeches for people. And, you know, that just, it doesn't work. That, that is robbing someone of their dignity, I think. You know, people have their own stories and their own agency and their own way of speaking. And you can only really unearth that by having a real conversation, by really listening and helping them sort of craft their story. And then understanding that giving a speech yeah. is hard. Right. And there's there's a way to do it. And, you know, whether you're doing sort of a three part play or whatever it is, there's a structure to it and it's a craft. And so someone needs to also learn how to do it to be able to do it well. And so there was always that that commitment to each other, to helping each other be be our best selves in our work as public people. Yeah, that's like a lot more work than writing a speech for somebody. (laughs) Earlier, you mentioned cutting a walk sheet from a phone book. Um, at some point you started to engage in some pretty scaled digital organizing, like in that kind of shift in digital organizing, where do the fundamentals of organizing still apply? How is it really not that different? And maybe how is it really different? Mm. Digital organizing, I think when it's at its best is really just a, a communication channel. That's how I think about it. So I can talk to more people when I use tools than I can without them. To think of it as just as another way to talk to your people, I think is first and foremost. And engaging with folks in a way that also enables them to talk back to you. So that sort of peer-to-peer texting that's come out, I think is really important. But what I coach folks in doing is to always follow up with a phone call. Mm-hmm. And that you've got to move from a, a digital relationship or a relationship that requires technology as a mediator between you and a person to actually getting on the phone and then eventually moving people to taking action in real life. So for me, it, it's just sort of a, a way of talking to people, talking to more people than you would be able to otherwise. But you still want to move people to be taking the same kind of action and then to be training them, which you can use, you know, digital tools for, but then helping them develop, you know, I do a lot of work now developing small local circles. And how do you teach people to do a one-on-one? How do they sort of get out of their own circle of people that they know and get beyond that and start getting beyond the choir and building in their own communities and building that bigger we that's about building an organization? You've got a vision around these circles. I do. I'm kind of obsessed with them. (laughs) No, tell us the vision as much as you're willing to. I mean, I think that, you know, in these days, we have a great opportunity right now. Biden is ahead of us in a lot of ways, I think, right? Like some things that we couldn't even imagine uh, 10 years ago are starting to come policy-wise. And there's also going to be a huge backlash. And at the same time, we know that sort of the climate crises that we're facing, we have a global pandemic, we are at risk, our very, you know, humanity is at risk, right? And, and I think that the only way to counter that is to have people be in relationship locally, whether it's like a mutual aid hub, or you want to call it a resiliency circle, But, you know, like the USDA, when they said it's on their website, what is the most important thing you should do to get ready for a climate crisis? And the answer on the USDA website is get to know your neighbors. Hmm. Now, that's organizing. Yeah. So how can we create the tools to help everyday people 
be able to develop the kind of transformative relationships that we're talking about, right? Because at the end of the day, we are trying to transform society. We don't want to replicate the structures of inequity that we have now, but sort of bring these tools and democratize them and bring them to more and more people using technology and help people form small circles, which are a little different than a big institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and have those small circles where people are both transforming themselves and each other in community and building the beloved community. And they can be, you know, taking care of each other in this time of crisis, but then can also then take action together. Um, I think that this sort of organizing, especially through the Trump administration, was so federal. Everything is about sort of federal policy. But I think real change happens locally. And, you know, we've got to be addressing our, our local city councils. We've got to be, you know, taking on the mayor and then taking on building power at the state level and going from the ground back up. And I think that starting with circles and helping folks be in relationship and take care of each other in this time is really what's needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that caring, man, that's going to that's gonna build some depth. So... You and I have talked about this some, but like the craft of organizing, the field of organizing, let's say, has changed a ton in the last 10 to 15 years. What do you see as some of the positive changes and what causes you some concern? Mm. You know, in the old days, and I'm, I actually did not ascribe to some of these things, but, you know, people didn't work on elections. Um, there wasn't really a worldview involved in our work. Mm-hmm. There was really not a goal of governing. Governing power wasn't something that we talked about. And, you know, the understanding that we have to really take on, I think in particular, white supremacy and capitalism is now sort of de rigueur in our movement. And that's excellent. There's a, an understanding that our liberation is bound together. I think that we're, we're still working on, of course, but, but really understanding the role of white supremacy and sort of the systems that are oppressing us, uh, I think has, has, to me, has been one of the most important leaps that our movement has made. Yeah, well said. I think all of those things have just transformed the movement and, and having folks work together, right? Whether it's, you know, organizations working together and networks working together and, and working outside of your issue area, um, the intersectional movement that we're a part of now was really not what when we were organizing 25 years ago that's not what was happening it was very turfy and sort of a lot of competition i would say in terms of you know what's what's getting lost i think that it's the idea of really developing grassroots leadership and versus you know organizing the unorganized versus mobilizing the already convinced and and you know i've been thinking about this a lot and i think that the resistance was really important we had to spend the last four or five years just fighting every single thing every single day and that required mobilizing all the time it was exhausting and it was traumatic and i think you know we all have some amount of ptsd from what happened but we've got to really have a vision and be fighting for something instead of just fighting against things and we have to recognize that we are not big enough we are not the majority and we have to organize unorganized people and not just stick with the people who agree with us, who we have fun going to protests with. And I, I worry that, that that's sort of getting, getting lost these days. And I say that, though, with the utmost love for folks that have been resisting, because we had to do it, right? And so I think it's sort of, how do we transition now into this new moment? And, it, and it's hard. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by the unorganized? But when we say organizing the unorganized, we mean people who don't necessarily agree with us yet or people who don't know that they agree with us. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm not saying we need to go organize the enemy. Yeah. No, of course, we need to organize, you know, the people who are, you know, working three jobs and don't have time or the people who maybe say, yeah, I think that's a good idea. But so and that requires that long slog of going out and meeting people where they're at and building those relationships again those sort of public relationships and taking people on that journey of moving through their own story and sharing and and shame anger and love and helping people find their agency to take action like that's again that whole cycle we need to go out and find people find the others is a phrase that i often say to organizers that i'm training Um, You can't just stick with the people that are already with you. And even though you're busy and you got to turn people out, you still have to find the time, I think, to go talk to the others, to find them and bring them in um, and welcome them. Yeah. So one of the things I remember loving about going to the ADP office is there were like different slogans and, you know, organizing lessons like printed out or you know on the wall in all kinds of different ways in the office like i'm (laughs) sure that was the ones that were up were not an accident what's a favorite organizing axiom of yours Mm, i have so many i really feel like the one that sort of speaks to me and like says also reveals who i am is a theologian robert mcavee brown's quote that says what you see depends on where you stand what you hear depends on who you listen to who you are depends on what you do. Hmm. Why that one? I I think, you know, that just really speaks to the role of the organizer. It's almost like we're a doula or a midwife helping people birth into a new sense of self hmm. to imagine a new world. Um, and we're constantly helping people see themselves anew. And that you have to really listen to people. It depends where you are, who you're listening to, who you're talking to, where you're getting your feedback from, and then what you choose to do with that. If you remind yourself to always go back to the base, I think that you'll always be in the right place. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question. You got 100 brand new organizers in a room. You can teach them three things. What are you going to teach? Oh, my God. I'm going to teach them how to do a one-on-one, how to meet people where they're actually at and not preach at them and actually listen and how to engage with loving agitation, how to go deeper. That's, that's a whole set of things, but I'm going to count that as one. (laughs) Good. Okay. The second thing I'm going to teach them is that if you're just building relationships, but not doing anything with them, that that's also not organizing, that you've got to be identifying what the problems are and then having a strategy to win, to craft the solution. And then the third thing I'm going to teach them is to then love on each other. It's a whole cycle, right? It's like you meet, you build the relationships, you go into action and then you celebrate and you, you love each other and then you do it again. Kind of simple when you put it that way. It is actually. Caroline, this was great. I'm really glad you did this tonight. Thanks so much. An organizer recently said to me that the wins that are on the table today are not commensurate with the scale of the problem. Sadly, that's often going to be the case. 
But statements like this don't really change things for people. Putting forth a theory on how to change the conditions or win the best thing possible in the current ones can't. Under less than ideal conditions, the Alliance to Develop Power won buyouts of thousands of units of housing and moved those into collective control of tenants with Section 8 vouchers. That is winning the world as it should be within the world as it is. Caroline and the Alliance to Develop Power identified a strategic opening that made winning ownership of these properties a possibility. As organizers, we need to listen, build relationships, and develop people, and we need to be strategists, looking for levers that make bigger change possible. We are always doing strategy. Developing leaders. Caroline said that one of the things we always say to members is we're going to be there with you. We're not going to throw you into something that you are not prepared for. Yes, we'll throw you into new things, and we'll all agree to do that, and we'll all do that together. This is a thing organizers get to do all the time. Prepare people for new experiences. It could be chairing a meeting, leading a negotiation, or canvassing for the first time. There are so many choices in how we do that prep. We can fail to prepare the person, we can just tell the person what to do, or we can actually work with them to think about how they want to do it what story they want to tell, point they want to make, wrinkle they want to put on this act of leadership. Yes, we have an obligation as organizers to provide counsel, but that doesn't mean we rob people of the opportunity to think it through themselves. This takes time, patience, and listening. But this iterative style of leadership development, this is where the magic happens. I have so many memories of Caroline, the executive director of the organization, sitting with members doing exactly this often for a couple hours until it was damn good and it felt like it was theirs. Because it actually was. You can learn more about the work that Caroline Murray is doing at peoplesaction.org slash nextmove. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.